The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and, you, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. All right, well, John chapter 8 this morning. Um, when I was in high school, my, my friends and I on, on the baseball team, we started uh, having this really kind of dumb practice together where uh, what we, would, we would spend kind of all of our free time writing out different raps. Now, just hang with me for a second, okay? We, we may have watched a certain movie that involved a lot of rap battles, uh, which basically just involves someone on a microphone facing another person and rapping. And the whole point, honestly, is basically to just destroy the other person. Like, that's kind of the whole point of a rap battle, is to kind of get the best diss or, or the best thing against that person. And so my friends and I, we saw a movie like this. We're like, hey, that sounds super fun. Instead of practicing baseball, let's do rap battles. So we would spend all day in class, like, we weren't, most of us weren't good enough to just like freestyle, which is the legit way to do it. We'd like write them out and then read them. So it's like half, half like doing it, but half not. So anyways, we would just spend all this time like writing out these rap battles. And then at lunchtime, it was like, okay, we got to get together. It's, it's so-and-so versus so-and-so today. Like, here we go. And honestly, what just happened over the course of weeks is we just started to realize like, this is really bad for our friendship. Like, all we're doing at lunchtime is destroying each other's character, appearance, family life. Like, it's just getting into a bad place. Like, we should probably stop destroying each other with our words. But that was me. That was what I did in high school. But I wonder, how do you, you know, we, we, you probably don't engage in necessarily rap battles all throughout your life. Maybe you do. But, like, we all know that feeling of what it's like to stand before someone and have them speak a word to us that's hurtful. Right? We, we, we know what it feels like to, to be a recipient of, of slander or judgment. And my question for us this morning is, how do you tend to respond to that? How do you tend to respond to somebody who's opposing you, who's speaking an ill word about you or to you? Or attacking you or hating you in some degree? How do you respond to that? Maybe for you, you just kind of, you don't really respond outwardly. You just kind of hold this internal bitterness. Or maybe for some of you that are a little bit more brave, you just bring it right back. Like immediately as it's received, you dish it right back. Maybe for some of you, you, you dish it back, but not directly, but indirectly to all of your friends and those that might know this person and you do slander behind their back. Or maybe you just kind of 
separate yourself, but you maintain this self-righteousness like I would never do something like that. We all respond in certain ways to slander. And in John chapter 8, Jesus has been engaged in a conversation with a group of Jews. And at this point in the conversation, the Jews have realized that they have been unsuccessful at shaming Jesus through theological arguments. They kind of realize, hey, we're a little outmatched. And so they decide to change their strategy and fight dirty. And so what they do at the end of John chapter 8 is they decide to personally attack and abuse the character of Jesus, his identity, his integrity. And Jesus responds, but he responds quite unlike we tend to respond to the very same things. If you look in verse 48, the Jews answered him and said, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? This is essentially the, the, the slander of Jesus' character right here. Now, this initial charge that you are a Samaritan. First of all, Jesus is not a Samaritan by ethnicity. He's a Jew. And these are Jews speaking this to say, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? Now, culturally, Samaritans are a despised people group. And they're hated by both Jews and non-Jews. They're hate because a, a Samaritan was essentially this. Those that were Jews intermarried with those that were not Jews and kind of created this new group of people called the Samaritans. And with it, they came, adapted slightly different beliefs and religious practices. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans because they weren't fully Jews. And the non-Jews hated the Samaritans because they were partly Jews. So it's a people group that really just doesn't really fit in. Nobody likes them. Everyone hates them. And the Jews in particular despise them both religiously and ethnically. In every other way, they view the Samaritans as less than. And so they say, that's what you are, Jesus. You must be a Samaritan, less than us. Because what Jesus had just done in this conversation is he had called into question their own Jewishness. Right? This crowd had found all this confidence in being sons of Abraham. Surely God accepts us and loves us and is pleased with us because we are sons of Abraham. Because we are ethnically Jewish, God accepts us and loves us. We don't, we don't need any saving. You say we're slaves to sin. No, no, no. We're sons of Abraham. And Jesus has called that into question because he says, if you were sons of Abraham, you would be doing what Abraham did. Namely, Believing in me, Jesus, as the Messiah, but you don't do that. Instead, you plot my murder. So actually, your son's not of Abraham, your son's of the devil. That's what Jesus had just said. If you missed it, go back and read it. It's pretty epic. And so the, this group is saying, if you're going to call that into question, our own Jewishness, surely you are probably just a Samaritan. And then they took it a little further and said, you have a demon. They thought, Jesus' assertion to them, questioning their Jewish heritage, was so outlandish that he, he must be under the influence of the devil. The very one, mind you, that Jesus just said is their father. And all the while, with this attack, they're actually proving to be the ones that are actually under the influence of the devil because they're rejecting God himself. But both of these accusations kind of come together to form one accusation to essentially say to Jesus this, you are a heretic. You, Jesus, are a false teacher. You are a voice of evil and lies. That is essentially what they're saying 
to Jesus. And it begins by saying, are we not right in saying this? It seems to be that this accusation against Jesus was actually commonplace among Jewish authorities. Like, are we not right in asserting this? Because we've been saying this for a while, and clearly you seem to be putting it on display, Jesus. Are we not right in saying that you are a false teacher? You are a voice of evil and lies. This is the kind of gossip and slander that Jesus endured for our salvation. And so Jesus responds in verse 49. I love the simplicity with which the text reads. It simply says, I do not have a demon. Just very, very simple. I I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and yet you dishonor me. I don't seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus responds to this slander with both truth and mercy. He initially just simply says, I I don't have a demon. You're actually wrong about that. All of my behavior and words and actions can be attributed to my obedience to the Father, not to the devil. He just kind of leaves the Samaritan accusation, which is interesting. But Jesus answers very simply, tells them the truth, and it's as if he finds all of his confidence in the fact that he knows who he's obeying. Regardless of whether they agree with him or what they think, he knows who he's obeying. And so he simply says, I don't have a demon. I'm not under the influence of the devil. Everything I do is in obedience to my father. And there's a word for us in that. That if we are following the leadership and the voice of Jesus, and when I say following Jesus, I don't just mean you're a Christian and therefore everything you do is following Jesus. No, I mean like when we are actually actively following the leadership of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, going where he tells us to go, when we're actually doing that, there is no amount of gossip or slander or anything that can convince God to be against us. There's no amount of gossip that could condemn us. If we're truly following Jesus, we can have confidence. We can have an anchor that says, if God is for me, who can be against me? And that's the place where Jesus stands as he interacts with this crowd. He knows who he's following and who he's trusting. And then he says in verse 51, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see Death. Now, at first glance, that might seem like a radical change of subject. Like, Jesus, we're talking about you like being a demon, maybe a Samaritan. These people don't really like you. And now you're just talking about, like, if you follow my word, you'll never see death. Like, what? Why are you saying that? That doesn't seem to go, that doesn't seem to fit. But I think what's happening here is in the face of this opposition that Jesus is experiencing, this hatred, this rejection, it's as if Jesus has a moment of seeing exactly why he came to earth. We've read this in John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think in the midst of this conversation, these, these Jews rejecting him and hating him and accusing him, I think it's this moment where Jesus is reminded, this is exactly why I'm here. It is to save sinners. 
I think our instinct when we think about God is to think that at the sight of sin, Jesus runs the other direction. But in the incarnation of Jesus, in the coming of Christ to earth, we have a perpetual reminder to us as sinners that God runs towards sinners to bring salvation. Yes, God is holy and therefore he cannot be tainted by sin. But sometimes we start to think that God just sees sin and it's like he gets scared and runs away. He can't come close to it. No, that's actually not what we see in the birth of Christ. And Christ taking on human flesh to come to earth, it's like this microphone to all of us that says, God comes close to sinners to save them. He doesn't run away in disgust. No, he comes in. And it's what he does here. He comes in close. And he looks at his opponents and he mercifully offers them salvation. This is who Christ is. Christ came to save sinners. This is what the Apostle Paul would write about later in the book of 1 Timothy. Look at what he says. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of God, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. That's not to say that the reason Paul was saved is because he didn't know Jesus was the Messiah. He's simply saying, I've received mercy even though I acted in all of this way. And the reason I acted that way is because I was ignorant of who Christ was. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ, Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and amen. The apostle Paul views himself as the worst of sinners. He was a hater of God and he calls himself an insolent opponent, a persecutor, one that killed Christians for following Jesus, received the mercy of Jesus and got saved. And Paul says the reason why God did that, one of the reasons, was to display to everyone else who would come to believe in Jesus the patience of Christ, the mercy of God towards sinners who will come to him and believe which is exactly the mercy we see Jesus display in this story. These opponents do not deserve what Jesus just said to them. They do not deserve this offer of, hey, if you will come and follow me and trust my word, you'll never see death. They don't deserve that. But in his mercy, that's what Jesus does towards sinners. This is who he is. This is his character. And he gives this promise that those that will come to me, anyone who keeps my word, will never taste death. Death is the thing that haunts all of us, is it not? Death is not natural, it's the product of sin. And it's our greatest fear. No doubt, ultimately it is. 
And death is ultimately about separation, right? Separation from life, from relationships, from goodness, but ultimately separation from God. But the cross of Christ delivers us, saves us from death. This is what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, of flesh and blood, that through death, listen to that, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and through his death deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The author of Hebrews knows the human heart. He says, I know all of you are terrified of death. So much so that your fear of death is a lifelong slavery. But Jesus came to earth to die on a cross so that through his death, you could be delivered from death. It's the irony of the gospel. That Jesus would save by dying. Right? That he would lay down his life and in doing so could raise dead people to life. And calls us to the same. Says, lose your life. Lay it down and in me you'll find it. It's the truth that when we come to Christ and we see what he's accomplished on the cross and we repent and we believe in him, we are set free from death. Meaning, we, we have eternal life in Christ. So though we close our eyes in death, the Christian never dies. Even though we die. We don't die. That's what he's saying. We, we, we enter into eternal life in Christ, but we also have a, a, a new kind of life now. So we, we have a, a quality of life and a, and a depth of life right now that death can't touch. It can't destroy you, you've been set free from the fear of death. Do we believe that? That we actually as followers of Jesus no longer need to fear the greatest fear? If we actually deeply believed the gospel, we are set free from the fear of death. if we believe the gospel. Jesus offers this to his opponents, something they don't deserve. He responds with mercy towards them. But he won't respond that way forever. So we're also told that a day of judgment is coming. This offer of mercy is here for them to take, but if they refuse it, there will come a day where they'll have to answer for that. Conversation continues. The Jews say, well, now we know you have a demon. That's literally their response to the offer of salvation. Well, it's clear. It's clear you are insane, Jesus. You have a demon. Abraham died. Right? The, the, the one you, you, you've talked about yeah, Abraham, he died, and he was like the greatest one. And all the prophets who spoke the word of God, they also died. And yet you say, if anyone keeps your word, they'll never die? You're insane. Are you greater 
than our father Abraham who died, they say? And the prophets? Who do you make yourself out to be? You know, I love a good fire in the fireplace. (laughs) I do. There's something about a fire in a fireplace that's so cozy and comforting. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? If you've ever seen a fire in a fireplace, the sound of the wood crackling, right? The, just like the roar of the fire. Like you, you find that right distance where it's like not, you don't get too sweaty, but like you're not too far away to lose the heat. You like find that just right place. You curl up with a blanket, maybe a, a cup of coffee or hot cocoa or something like that. There is something so warm and comforting about a fire, right? A fire is so good. That same fire, when you're driving down PCH and you see it coming from under the hood of your car and your car engine, all of a sudden, I hate fire. That's now a very bad thing, right? What's the, but what's the difference between those two things? The fire is still fire. It still burns. It still gives off warmth and heat. Still making lots of crackling noises. What's the difference? The difference is where it is. A good thing in the wrong place is a bad thing. A good thing in the wrong place is a bad thing. And for the Jews, they took Abraham and they put him in the wrong place. Therefore, it was a very bad thing. They took Abraham, who was given to them, to point their eyes to Christ. In in the Lord's eyes, Abraham was a good gift But they took that good thing and put it in the wrong place. They elevated Abraham to a place he didn't belong. They elevated him to a place to where they looked to Abraham to provide things that only Christ can provide. And so they took a good thing and put it in the wrong place and it became a very bad thing. This was their idolatry. It was this, Abraham makes us righteous. Abraham, our connection to him through our heritage makes us righteous before God. And it's that idolatry that leads them to call Jesus a heretic, a false teacher, a liar. It's idol worship. Idol worship isn't simply just worshiping statues. We can worship anything. Anything can become an idol to us. And it's also not just worshiping bad things. Idol worship is also when good things become ultimate things. Which is what they did with Abraham. And it's what we do all the time. When we look to things to provide what only Jesus provides, that's idolatry. We look to things to provide only what Jesus can provide. We look to things to provide our righteousness. We look to things to provide the acceptance that we're longing for. We look to things and stuff and people and places to provide the status that we crave. Or we look to our finances or our possessions or our futures to provide security for us when all the while the only one who can provide those things is Christ. So we take good things 
and we make them ultimate things and look to them to provide what only Christ can, and that's idolatry. It's also when we take things that are meant to point us to God, and instead they become our gods. Things like the law of God, his commands and his and instructions. They are meant to draw us to depend on the Lord. They are not meant to be our Lord. There's a difference there. The law of God is meant to reveal our sinfulness, our need for a Savior, and draw us to see Him, to point us to Him. Or our own passions. The passions of our flesh are meant to actually lift up our eyes to see, oh my gosh, I, I can't even control these things. I, I need some help. But instead, for many of us, the passions become our God that we follow and we listen to. Or just any kind of created thing. All of creation is meant to proclaim to us the glory of God. And yet for many of us, creation is our God. Idolatry is also when things meant to proclaim God's glory become proclaimers of our glory instead. Our talents and gifts that were given to us to proclaim the glory of God, we hijack them and say, no, these serve me and my glory and my reputation. Or our bodies, which were meant to be used to bring glory to God, we use them to bring glory to ourselves. Or our finances, which are given to us as a resource to bless and give glory to God. No, no, no. We use them to keep for ourselves and build up our glory. All of these things are idolatry. And our idolatry pushes us to say the same thing to Jesus. Jesus, you heretic. Every single one of us, through our sins and idol worship, make the exact same declarations about Jesus that these group of Jews do. In the midst of our sin, we are saying to Jesus, you are a liar. You are not good. You're, you're a voice of evil. You, you, you're just trying to, to take away my freedom and my joy and my stuff. You're a heretic. You're a false teacher. You're dangerous. You're not out for my good. I need to run from, that's what we say with our sin. The same things that these people do. We too, alongside Paul, are the chief of sinners. But Christ is the chief savior. Now these people here, they had the worst kind of idolatry, the most dangerous kind, the spiritualized idolatry. The kind of idolatry that is rubber stamped as pleasing to God. It's the most deceptive kind. In their sin, they proclaim... Are you greater than Abraham? Are you greater than the greatest? What they're really saying is, are you greater than our best idol? Jesus answers their question very directly. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? 
Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I don't know if you've ever seen that TV show. I don't, I don't know if it's still on anymore, but if you've ever seen that TV show, Undercover Boss, I think it was on CBS. Basically, the premise of the show is like the, the, the person in charge, the president, the CEO, whatever it may be, would go undercover, like put on a disguise, and they'd go work in their own company at like the lowest paying job so that they could get eyes and ears on the ground without anybody knowing that they were in charge, that they're the CEO. And it's quite entertaining to watch and sometimes kind of sad. But these, these CEOs would go undercover and they, they would interact with all their employees and they'd get the, the skinny on what's really happening in the workplace and, and start to even maybe ask questions like, hey, what, what do you think about the, the boss? You know, what, what's your real opinion? What is everybody saying? You know, what's word on the street about, about that boss? Yeah, I don't, for, for, just for the record, I don't like him. He's the worst. What do you think? They just kind of get the, the, the real opinion of the people and sometimes it would just turn really ugly. Somebody would get fired or sometimes it would be a great or just you can imagine the, the wide range of outcomes for something like that. But the whole show climaxes each episode with the revealing of the undercover boss, right? Where now everyone all of a sudden sees, oh, it's the CEO and I just told him he's an idiot. Like, oh my gosh, I'm for sure going to get fired, right? That's like the whole like climax of the show and it's kind of what Jesus is doing right here. Like you've been, you've been bad mouthing me. You've been saying you've been following God because you're sons of Abraham and but you're rejecting me and that's actually worship of God. But I'm here to actually tell you the God you think you're worshiping by rejecting me is me. Like the ultimate undercover boss right here. Like revealed in the flesh to you, it is me. And he tells them very clearly, here is who I am. And I think he's saying a few things. One, he's revealing to them, he is God. He is the eternal God. This isn't the first time Jesus has used this phrase where he says, I am. He has said it throughout John a few different times. And it's thought to be referencing uh, God's interaction with Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, where he appears to Moses in a burning bush. And he tells Moses to go into Egypt and deliver his people out of slavery to Egypt. And Moses says, well, when I go tell the people, who am I to say you are? What's your name? And God says, I am who I am. I am the eternal one. I am God. I am the maker of the heavens and the earth. I am the covenant God. I am the God who loves his people and is faithful to them. And Jesus says, I am. That was me. The God that spoke to Moses in the burning bush speaks to you now. I am eternal. This is what's awesome about Jesus. Jesus doesn't just reference history. He remembers it. The Jews are talking about Abraham like, hey, we, we can reference Abraham. We have a long history of people that go back to, and we're connected to Abraham. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, I know that guy you reference. I remember him. Oh, oh yeah, the Abraham. I, I made him. I remember making him. I, I remember choosing him and, and calling him and speaking to him and making a covenant promise to him that, that Aaron just read at our call to worship. I remember saying those things to Abraham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're talking about. I know him. I just thought of Elf. Sorry. <laughs> if you've never seen the Elf movie, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 
But he's saying, yeah, I, I, don't, just, I don't just reference it. I, I remember history. I remember Abraham. I am his God. I am the one that's been faithful to him. And then he says, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Because in the covenant that God made with Abraham... God made a promise to bless the nations through Abraham's family. That promise is fulfilled in Jesus, who comes through the line of Abraham. He's a Jew. He's of the people of Israel. He's of the tribe of Judah. He's of the people of Israel that God established through Abraham. So when Abraham hears the promise of God to bless the nations through his offspring, he looks forward to the day of Jesus coming. That's where he finds his joy and his hope is in the coming of Christ. Abraham looks forward to the messianic age, the coming of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all of Abraham's hopes and dreams and joys. He's telling them I'm eternal. He's also telling them I'm central. I am absolutely central. Every story that you read or hear is about me. Every promise is ultimately fulfilled in me. Every person points to me. Every page of scripture, every covenant, every movement, everything finds all of its fulfillment in me. That's what he's saying. I am central to the whole story. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Because his life was ultimately about me. All of it's about me. It's what all of the scriptures are all about. Pastor Tim Keller has said it better than almost anyone I've heard say it. It's worth reading at length. Here's what he says as he walks through Old Testament characters and how they show us they're ultimately about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who though he was innocently slain has blood that now cries out but not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we like Jacob only received the wounds of grace. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. He's a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is a true and better Job, who, the truly innocent sufferer, who intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory even though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. 
Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. Is that not so good? That is who Jesus is. Every story is about him. And look, we could keep going. We could keep going throughout human history and look at every reputable figure in human history and say, ultimately, they were pointing our eyes to Christ. Because is that not the point of every single human being's exist, existence? We could walk through so many that Jesus is a better Mother Teresa who truly gives his life for the sick and the destitute, trading places with them to bring healing. Jesus is an even better Martin Luther King Jr. who stands up to all injustice once and for all, identifies with the marginalized and the abused, and lays down his life to bring liberation and freedom. Jesus is a better Abraham Lincoln who doesn't just declare freedom but accomplishes freedom for every slave. Jesus is a better Beethoven Right? Whose creativity and masterpieces cause all of us to sing. He's a better Shakespeare who writes the most beautiful and moving stories of all time. He's a better Einstein whose brilliance and wisdom surpasses everyone and who doesn't just discover how physics work but created physics. He's a better Michael Jordan who truly displays the power and ability to do things that no one else can do and causes us to praise and wonder at his majesty. We could, we could go on and on and on with everyone in human history because this is the purpose of all of humanity is that it would draw our eyes to see Christ. To see every reputable figure we see anywhere for all time is ultimately just a shadow of the glory of Christ. He is central. We also see that he's telling them that he is preeminent. This is what Colossians 1 says. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. That's you. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the first, the last, the opener, and the closer. The king of glory. And his supremacy crushes our idols. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, ultimately, all these things are for my glory, not yours. All the things that, that you and I would cling to as our things, he says, no, no. Those are, those are mine. Abraham's not yours. He's mine. He, 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 he's actually a proclaimer of my glory. He, he doesn't belong to you. He's mine. Your, your, your career is not yours. It's mine. Your story is not yours. It's mine. And all the things that we, we seek to find our righteousness in, they're ultimately not ours either. They're his. He says, Love, that's not yours, that's mine. Mercy, that's not yours, that's mine. 
Justice, that, that's not yours, that's mine. Diversity, that, that's not yours, that's mine. Good, good deeds and good works, and that's not yours, that's my stuff. That's the stuff, that, that, that belongs to me, it gives glory to me, that, that's my territory. All these things are, are things because of me. They're pointing, everything is mine. He is preeminent in all things. He says, not only am I greater than all those things, but all of those things actually exist to exalt me. So that Abraham you find your hope in, actually his purpose is to exalt me. But the response of the people is the instinctual response of a sinner's heart at the exaltation of Jesus. It's essentially this, kill him. Take him out. Who does this guy think he is to elevate himself above our idols? Who does this guy think he is to elevate himself above us? But the truth is that we can find comfort in this morning is that Christ's exaltation as the greatest ultimately is for our good. Because what is the greatest display of the glory of Jesus Christ? It is the cross. The cross is the greatest, most ultimate display of the glory of Jesus Christ. It is what all of eternity God's people will be singing and praising him for is that the lamb was slain in our place. So the greatest moment of glory for Jesus Christ is the cross, which is also simultaneously the greatest piece of good news for sinners who will believe. So we can take comfort as, as God's people that his exaltation is actually for our good. Because when he is exalted, those that trust in him are saved. This is the generosity of Christ. We can rejoice this morning in his supremacy, his preeminence, his centrality, not only because he's worthy of it, but because his glory is for our good. So he says, all that you look for in Abraham is found in me. So come to me. And it's the same invitation for us. All that you've been looking for in your idols, it's found in me. Come to me. I'm going to invite the worship team on up as we respond now to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, it is our temptation within us to see you exalted and glorified and and not want to acknowledge it and want to feel threatened. But Lord, this morning in this very moment, would you give us eyes to see that you are a kind, a gentle, a generous Savior. Who was lifted up on a cross, receiving the wrath of God for our sins so that we, the idol worshipers, the, the rejecters, 
could be saved. That, that you died so that we don't have to. Lord, we lay down our idols, our worthless idols at your feet. Would you crush them? Would you help us this morning see the foolishness of our idols? That they can't, they don't have ears to hear us or eyes to see us or hands to serve us. No, they're, they're worthless. They're dead. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your heart towards us as your people that when we come to you in repentance, you are faithful and just to forgive us and not yell at us and say, I told you so. No, you bring us back. And so Lord, we want to respond to your mercy by exalting you. by recognizing you as the preeminent, central Jesus that you are. That there is none like you. And so, Lord Jesus, that's what we want to do as your people. We want to lift you up. Would you give us a joy in that as we respond to you now? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.